Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies, and as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI, or maybe just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show, and of course, the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, in a new paper titled Socio-Technical Specification for the Broader Impacts of Autonomous Vehicles, quite a title, by Thomas Crendel Gilbert from Cornell's Digital Life Initiative, he discusses what it means for society at large when whole transportation systems are designed for, and in some cases by, AI. Autonomous vehicles and new designs for more efficient roads that are optimized for fleets of self-driving cars could, Thomas Crendel proposes, support up to twice as many vehicles as today's roads. Beyond being safer, autonomous vehicles will make traffic flows more predictable, potentially reduce commute times, and reduce the cost of road maintenance. How we think about getting around urban settings will also change. We'll plan our routes differently and may even feel safer walking or biking in dense downtown areas without all the bad human drivers. This is a fascinating look at how AI is changing mobility patterns and improving life in ways that will impact pretty much everyone on the planet. I found this fascinating. I hope you do too. As always, we'll link to the full article in today's show notes. But uh, now shifting to this week's conversation. There's a reason CIOs notoriously have the shortest tenure in the C-suite. When technology is working, nobody notices. And when it breaks, it's always your fault. The best enterprise tech leaders balance selecting, deploying, and managing tools, which provide a great employee experience. The exceptional ones do it for many years, and they do it across many organizations. Kurul Saini has been a technology leader at tech-first companies like Zora, Splunk, and Uber for more than a decade in roles with increasing responsibility. She's had a bird's-eye view of AI tech trends and the future of work. In her current role at Uber, Perul's service portfolio includes contact center, employee productivity, and identity management applications. Today, we get to learn from experts how to manage enterprise apps that support 30,000 employees and enable about 4 million drivers in 82 countries to complete more than 14 million trips per day. Without further ado, Perul, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's uh, Let's get started by having you share a little bit more about your uh, your background. Thank you for having me here. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. And uh, thank you for sharing that uh, interesting fact about AI. It's, it's interesting to see how much AI has picked up in the last decade or so. In terms of my background, as you mentioned, I've done different things. I have about 22 years of experience overall in technology. I actually started my career at a call center. So my first experience was customer support, doing support for HP printers and servers. And uh, that's when I started thinking about empathy when it comes to support. And that's kind of the, the baseline for IT, empathy. 
Um, after that, I have had various roles doing infrastructure engineering for large companies at global scales, management consulting, product development, and most recently, I've been a technology executive at high-tech companies. And it's been interesting to do that work so far. I mentioned why CIOs have a notoriously short tenure in the C-suite and why it's tough to be in IT. What would you say is the toughest part about your job? How is part about my job? I think I will start with explaining sort of what IT is, because people typically don't understand the complexity of what an IT organization does. If you think about the word IT, if you haven't worked in that organization, you would think IT is supposed to give you laptops and maybe email and a couple of other systems, right? But IT is so much more than that. IT touches every aspect of your life as an employee in a company. IT also touches every aspect of your business. So let me give you some examples. If you're an employee in a company and you, you know, log into your laptop, start your day, every application that you're touching during your day is managed and maintained by IT. If you are a business leader that is trying to create a go-to-market strategy or even create your revenue recognition reports at the end of the quarter, those systems in the back end are typically managed by IT. So you would not even be able to create those revenue recognition reports to re report out to the streets you know, what your revenue was if IT wasn't involved. You wouldn't be able to do high productivity work. You wouldn't be able to hire uh, employees because all of the HR systems are also managed by IT. So it's very complex. And the way I describe the role of IT is we're typically the last ones to know anything that's happening in the business, but we're the first ones to have to deliver if there is a business model pivot, much like what we saw with the pandemic, or if there is an acquisition, much like we see in much, many of these companies. IT is really the backbone of any organization. And I don't have to kind of share with you and, and your audience how much we see going wrong if IT is not invested in or is underinvested in, if there is if there is an economic event, if there is a social event, if there is a weather event, and your systems are not up to scale, it can be very detrimental for any business. So that's the complexity of IT. The, the leadership role in IT is, is interesting because for being a good leader in IT, you not only have to be a visionary because you want to be able to see five years down the road. You also have to be a strong strategist. You need to be able to create strategy based on where the business is going. So you're not only reacting to the changes, but you're proactive, working, proactively working with the business. You also have to be a deep technologist because you have to understand the nuances of these multiple technologies that you manage to be able to make the right calls, to be able to make the right investments. And then you have to have strong business and financial acumen. And it's just a mouthful to say that. So imagine trying to find all these skills in one leader. And it takes a lifetime of effort to be able to learn those skills and bring them all together and do the job of a CIO, which I would say is, is, is a hard thing, hard thing to find those skills in one leader. One of my friends who's a seven-time CIO and has been on the podcast a few times and has written several books about the role of IT and the role of the CIO, his name is Mark Settle. I uh, was most recently the CIO at Okta and he was the CIO when I got acquired into BMC Software a while back. He has his PhD in geology. And uh, when he talks about the role of, uh, the, role yeah. of the CIO, he talks very little about technology. He yeah. talks more about the human aspects and yeah. 
his role as a, as a people leader and as, like you said, a strategist. How do you think about the kind of dueling roles in IT of both being a technologist and a, a people manager? You know, one thing that I learned uh, in my tenure working in IT and technology overall is the baseline to anything is empathy. Which was, which is why I highlighted my first experience, which was at a call center. Because imagine when you're taking a call all the way in India, and somebody from US is desperately trying to get their printer or computer to work. They're, you know, trying to get something done, and they're completely flustered by the technology. At the other end of the line, the amount of empathy and care that you can bring for the person will determine how that call goes. And that was my first foray into the fear, <laughs> the confusion that technology creates and how much power, and think about it, I was an IT person at the time, although I was in a call center, but that's what IT support is. You're stuck and support helps you. I recognize the need for empathy, you know, from my from that experience that I had. And over the course of my career, as I worked with executives, ICs, um, architects, I think empathy is, the, is at the baseline of everything. We will be able to do a really good job as an IT leader if we can empathize with our business partners to see what they're going through and how can we solve their problems. If we can empathize with our employees to see what problems they are running into and how best we can solve for them. If we can empathize with the CEOs of our company to understand what challenges they're running into and how do I make it more efficient for them because you know we don't have unlimited budget typically. So empathy is at the center of it. Now, the other aspect of people management is the challenge also is hiring and retaining talent in IT because it's very easy to lose talent to product and engineering. They are typically more attractive fields to work in and really good engineers have a lot of options. So how do you make sure that you're creating the right growth path for your team? I think about three factors that are very important for any employee. One is psychological safety. You have to make sure that as a leader, your team feels safe in what they're doing. They have the psychological safety to be able to innovate and invent and do their daily job. The second aspect is connectedness. They have to feel connected to the purpose that your team has, your group has, or a business has. And it's been a pretty dramatic shift in the last couple of years where people want to work for a company that has a purpose, but they also want to work for a team that has a clearly defined purpose. And the third aspect is giving them that room to fail, learn, and grow, right? Not kind of telling them exactly what the next step will be, but giving them that room to innovate and grow. Those are three very important aspects to keep in mind as a people leader to not only hire talent, but retain and grow them. And that I find to be both an opportunity and a challenge in IT. I love that you went first to empathy. That we're here to talk about technology and the future of work and automation. And yet, you know, your first instinct was to talk about empathy it, because first and foremost, IT is about providing an exceptional experience to the employee and that transcends technology. I love, I love that you said that. So, but again, we are here to talk about technology mm -hmm. and the role of automation. So do you feel that there's tension between the need to introduce automation to deliver potentially better employee experience? And how do you think about that? Sometimes you might think about automation as dehumanizing the employee experience, but when used correctly, I'd argue it does just the opposite. How, how have you, maybe even at Uber, used automation to deliver a better employee experience? 
That is an interesting point. And, and your use of word dehumanizing, that's actually true now that I think about it, because we're taking that high touch experience out of the mix and replacing that with bots. Um, let me let me tell you about sort of what we are using or what you know IT typically in, a, in any company uses so far. And of course, we all know about the advancement of AI in the last uh, five years or so, but we are using robotic process automation. We are using chatbots. We are using more enhanced searches for our intranet so people can get their content easily and faster. Those are the typical aspects of automation we use. The, the reason why experience is not great is because of the foundational or underlying issues that any organization has. And that, that's not to do with IT, but any business as they grow, they grow exponentially. And the organization naturally has silos. Those silos hold the data. Those silos hold the integration pipeline. Those silos hold the quality or the lack of quality of data. So when you're trying to automate something, it is very important to have the right processes that you're trying to automate. And typically any organization that has grown does not take a step back to look at the processes end to end to see if they're the most efficient ones. So if you're trying to replicate sort of broken processes, even in an automated manner, that won't create a good experience. The second one is your data has to be clean and sort of streamlined for any kind of AI to be able to make sense of it. So if you're trying to use a disconnected experience that ex exists and then automate it, it will continue to be a disconnected experience. So the, the problem that we typically run into is that we don't take a lot of time to fix the foundation and we try to add something on top of your existing foundation and then hope that the experience would be good. So I, at least when I implement these tools, I spend enough time to be able to build that right, right foundation and education or change management is an important part of it before we roll out something that you know, all employees will be able to use. So that's one aspect of it. So when you look at architecting a system that's going to scale, whether it's Uber or the other companies that you've worked with, what are some of the best practices that you've learned, not just with the tool selection or the vendor selection, but also about configuration, keeping in mind the scope yeah. and the scale and, and the complexity of the systems that you, uh, that you manage? Yeah, one thing that I've, I'm realizing more and more as I'm making decisions to roll out tool at large scale is the lack of platformization. And what I mean by that is, for me, my guiding principles in making decision is a, I want to give my employees or my business a platform experience. So I invest in platforms, not siloed tools. Um, and it's hard to find companies that are investing and creating, investing in and creating platforms. Because what I notice more and more is that we're still trying to solve for a siloed problems. So one company is solving for integration, another company is solving for data quality, another company is solving for security. For somebody in my position, I want to be able to get all these components and feature in one platform. So a good example of a platform would be something like a Salesforce. They have their sales cloud capability that is used by the sales team, but they also have their service cloud capability used by the customer support teams. But they're investing heavily in machine learning and AI in the back end. So I don't have to go buy another tool to be able to add on to it. Now, it's not always perfect. But remember, in my role, I also have to balance the cost or spend and security along with the capability and the features. So a platform play typically works out really, really well for me. I always 
am impressed by the companies that have, be it a small, medium, or large size company, that have a goal for the future. If they may not have a set of capabilities or platform play today, if they're thinking about it in the future, I would be more invested in that technology. And I can put my sort of name behind that technology as I'm trying to roll it out. It's, it's important to, like I said, not replicate the bad practices that you have in the organization today. So especially if you have an opportunity to roll out a new tool, take the time to do two things. Apply that empathy lens and do the change management the right way. So let me share an example there. In, my, in one of my jobs, we had to replace our email system. And for me, it was a three-year journey because the first two years were change management to replace that email system. There's so much emotion invested in anything that people are using, especially email. So my company was divided. Half of the sales team, well, the sales team told me they will quit if we don't have, uh, if we, if we don't have Microsoft. And my uh, technology team told me that they will quit if I don't have Gmail for them. So the first two years there were just change management, educating people on sort of what these tools can do for them, removing that confusion, that fear from using one tool versus another, and eventually being able to roll it out. Uh, so change management is a key aspect. Education is another aspect and making sure the foundation in general is strong before you roll out any any tool, processes, data, all that plays into it. You mentioned you've experimented or maybe you're in production with some kind of AI first features or capabilities at the platforms that you support, whether Salesforce, ServiceNow, et cetera. Talk us through one case study. You're talking to an audience of uh, technologists who are interested in making better kind of enterprise-wide use of AI. What, what has worked for you? I'll give you an example that may not answer your question directly, but I think it's a little bit more practical. There is a use case that I ran into recently where we had to figure out how to make hiring go faster in an organization. And there are, so that was the business problem. Hiring was slow. And it was uh, the onus of the IT organization to sort of figure out how do you make it go faster because we own the tools. Now, there are many different ways of solving for that problem. So the first thing that I did was give visibility into what does that pipeline look like? What is the end-to-end process of how hiring is taking place? Of course, working with my business stakeholders. What happens between the different steps in the process? What is the timeline? you know, between these different steps, what are the hotspots? And then how can we change this, either the process or the steps? What do we cut out and what do we automate then to make a good experience? So for that, we used different technologies. And I, the, the, the way I'm answering your question is AI is not typically always the answer, but there are, there's a com- combination of different tools. So the first one that we used was business process mining tool, which I think is any IT organization should invest in it. Because typically we have to solve a business problem, but we don't have insight into what is happening on the business side. So investing in a tool like that gives you the bird's eye view, essentially to see what is happening. And then you can partner with the business to help have them change their methods of operation so you can configure the tools to be able to solve the actual problem. So business process mining was one. The second one was making sure that we are capturing data from the right tools or right components to be able to map out that end-to-end view. And the third aspect was then understanding what are the friction points in the experience that we can automate, either via a chatbot or via an automated notification 
or even filling out a form for you. So if you're in a doing an interview and you have a certain sense of whether you're going to say yes to this candidate or not, auto fill that form on your behalf. The tool can auto fill that form on your behalf and submit it, and then you can change it later. So just you know, adding automation to augment the manual experience along with making the process a little bit more efficient. And the third aspect is having visibility into that overall pipeline so you can continue to improve on the existing experience. I mentioned in the intro that being in IT in a technology company is particularly hard. Yes. In part because everybody thinks they can do your job better than you can, but also because Technology companies are 100% dependent on systems and processes to run the business. I know you've spent most of your career in and around tech companies. Talk us through what you think the added challenge is, whether it's an Uber, a Splunk, a Zora, et cetera, of managing the technology that runs a technology business. I think it's a lot of expectation setting because you're right. It's, it's common in technology companies for people to think that they can solved the IT problems faster than IT can. So for, for most of my life, I spent a lot of time doing education. So one thing that I left out from the skills of the CIO is marketing as well. You have to be a fantastic marketer and a salesperson too, on top of everything else that you need to know. So education on the complexities of IT, much like what I did at the beginning of this podcast is important. So I spent a lot of time uh, speaking to my stakeholders, explaining to them the scope of the work that IT manages and complexity so that I can build empathy in them or in their organization for the work that we do. If I don't spend the time explaining the complexity and sort of the challenges that we're running into, they won't know why we are working slow in some cases, or we have to work through security approvals before we can roll something out. So that education is important. And the second is, second aspect is, I always think in sharing from experience and showing them something is useful. So much like in the case of this process mining or the process mapping that we did, you know, the engineering leaders uh, tended to think that it's it's a tooling problem. It's an automation issue. But it took some time for us to map out the process, get that data and then show them that it wasn't really just a tooling issue. It was also a process issue. But walking that path with them, showing incremental progress, but at the same time, keeping an eye on the ball and then getting to the end point, but continuing to show that progress alongside is the key to do that. In, in summary, to answer your question, education and bringing people along and asking for help. The third thing that I do is I ask for help when I need their help. And uh, you would be surprised how much people change their view of your organization if you bring them along, you give them visibility and you ask for help because then they're invested in your success as much as you're invested in their success. One of the things that's notable about your career trajectory is that you spent time as an IT leader at some iconic companies. And I imagine you've learned from some iconic leaders. So whether it's Teen at Zora, or maybe Doug Merritt, I don't know if that's when you were at Splunk, but certainly Dara at Uber. What have you learned from the leaders that in the organizations you've been at? I want to start with Adobe, because I really enjoyed my tenure at Adobe. I, I want to say that Adobe was a company that was started with um, kind of empathy and compassion and care for employees at the heart of it. And as I was working there, 
I could feel that in their policies, in the way they treated employees, in the way they cared for employees, in the way they had their, just the structure. You could have a life, you could have a job, and you could kind of sort of do it all. So I really enjoyed my time that I could I could feel that care as an employee that the company had for us. And the other thing that I learned from Adobe was one of the first companies to do a massive SaaS transformation, moving from on-prem to SaaS, truly. And it wasn't easy because I was there during that time. It was pretty rocky, but kudos to Shantanu's leadership. That is just kind of watching him, not that I you know, saw him on a daily basis, but his um, steadiness in leadership and continuing to do that and continuing to innovate even today with that company is very inspiring, extremely inspiring. With Uber, I want to say um, it's a very complex business. That's the first thing I noticed about Uber. Um, and there is a lot of passion in people. But the leadership is the one that's making a difference. So my, my first experience, I've been at Uber two years now. My first experience was with culture. It is very different than anywhere else that I've been. And it was very accepting. It is a culture of learning. It is a culture of growth. It is a culture of innovation. Because I never hear anyone say this can't be done. The first thing any everyone says is, why can't we do this better? Right? We are Uber. We, we, we need to know how to do this better. We should be able to do this better, which, which was extremely um, amazing to see. And Dara and the rest of the leadership team, Nikki, Dara, they are the leaders that bring this empathy and compassion every time they come to a conversation, very approachable. And the way the decisions are made, you could see that they are thinking many, many years ahead. So just seeing Dara in action, I learned so much. And um, they, they continue to care about not only their employees, but also our partners, like our drivers and earners as well. So seeing that, that care, the thoughtfulness and decision-making actually staying ahead of the curve because it's not it's not easy in managing a, a business like Uber that is so complex and we're continuing to be profitable right now or you know on that journey so just seeing them in action making the decisions that they do while handling this complexity and all, all everything else that's happening in the world in terms of economic situations social situations it's just uh, it's very inspirational we're all thankful that Uber exists as a service and I talked a little bit in the in the intro. The fun fact was about the future of mobility and potentially autonomous vehicles and self-driving fleets. Tell us something that you know as an insider at Uber that may not be uh, <laughs> it may not be obvious as as uh, you know as Uber as Uber customers. Well, I would be able to share anything that's confidential. That's for sure. I, sh I shared with this a little bit that that you know people outside of Uber won't know. It's about um, the passion. You, you use the service, uh, the improvement in the service comes from this passion to make the customer experience better. You know, like uh, I wanted to talk about the values that we have at Uber. Uh, some of the values, and you can see it on our website, but some of the values that we have is trip obsessed. That is one of our values. So no matter what we do in our daily life, we have to make sure that any trips that you're taking, they are at the best experience that you can possibly have. The second value that we have is build with heart. So anything that we're building, 
there is a human component that we're bringing to it. So you see that love and care that we have in the product that we're building. And the third value that I really like is see the forest and the trees. So don't lose the you know, view of the big picture as you're doing your day-to-day -day job, but think about where you're going, what your goal is as you're operating day-to-day. -day. So I really like that about it, uh, about our, our work environment, especially working at Uber. Passion, passion of the people, the commitment that they have to the purpose and the goal that we have in this company is something that I would highlight. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. So believe it or not, we're almost out of time, but, uh, but I'm not letting you off the hot seat without answering one last question for me. So you were talking to an audience that consists of many leaders who would aspire to be in a role like yours, you know, at the, at the pinnacle of their careers. And many of them come from underrepresented minorities, females or different skin colors, backgrounds, et cetera. And a lot of them have been told um, because of how you look or how you talk or various physical attributes, uh, you're not a candidate for a career in IT leadership. And here you are, you know, you've defied, you know, all the stereotypes and, you know, you're sharing amazing examples of how you transform these organizations. What's your advice to aspiring leaders who have been told they can't do what you've done? Yeah. And that, that's really close to my heart. So thank you for asking me that question. Because you're right, I, I've had to have a lot of help throughout my career to not, not give up and to continue to have hope. So I'm, I'm fortunate that I, I, I meet these people even now. One thing I've learned is not change myself to meet my environment. And I'm very grateful to a mentor of mine that uh, helped reset this for me. Uh, even recently, even as a, as a leader and an executive, I have to work through rebuilding my confidence often. And I'm grateful for my mentors that kind of pull me back from my over-analysis and ask me to not change to meet the environment, but stay true to who I am. So a couple of things that I would suggest is having a strong foundation. And that I say for both technology and for your life as well. Figure out what your values are and work within that value system. Because as you grow in your career, decision-making should be rooted in something. And if you have a strong value system, if you have a good framework for decision-making, typically you wouldn't falter. And that just helps make the choices that you will be comfortable with. So that's one aspect. The second one is find people that will help you grow. And it's okay to take both positive and negative feedback, but figure out what feedback works for you based on how you want to grow, where you want to grow. So seek out those people that you can learn from and make that effort. And third, invest in growing yourself, invest in learning, invest in making that time to find people or help others or take courses that will help you get to that next level. And the, the fourth aspect is never lose hope or have courage. They go hand in hand. So one of the questions that Dan, that you'd send me over was what advice would I give my younger self would be to just take that leap and not be afraid to take the leap because it's not guaranteed that you would always succeed. Right? Like the, your guarantee for success if you take a chance is 50%, but your guarantee for failure is 100% if you don't try. So always try for something that you feel is out of your reach. The max that will happen is you'll learn something in the process, but at least you would have given it your best shot. 
Excellent advice. Thank you, Pearl. Thank you. Well, uh, gosh, what a great discussion. I've got to mention to all the listeners that Pearl did this while having COVID. So uh, your energy is amazing. This conversation <laughs> was brilliant. And uh, thank you for doing this. I know it would have been so much easier for you to reschedule. I appreciate that. It was so fun having this conversation. Thank you, John, for, it was for your thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. Well, and thank you for letting us go way off script. I'm not sure we covered just about anything that we had, uh, that we had prepared for, but uh, you did a great job. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. You bet. Well, uh, that's a wrap for this week on AI and the future of work. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin. And of course, we are back next week with another fascinating guest. Thank you.